So let's get started. French journalist Lena Mogger spent five years reporting on a story that once she got into it, she couldn't shake it and she couldn't believe what it was about. It is now a book and it's called The Vanished, The Evaporated People of Japan. It is estimated that at least 100,000 annually, every year, 100,000 Japanese men and women vanish. Some of you are familiar with the notorious suicide forest. We're not talking about that, though that's, that's part of this culture that's interesting. But 100,000 Japanese men and women annually evaporate, disappear. It's so taboo, Maga writes. It's something you can't really talk about, but people can disappear because there's another society underneath the main Japanese society. Why are so many people disappearing and evaporating? Answer, shame. Shame. I want you to meet Norihiro. He's 50. He disappeared 10 years ago. He said there were two major events in his life that did so much damage and shame that led to him disappearing. The first was he was cheating on his wife. The second was that uh, he says this was actually more damaging in his eyes. This is his perspective. He lost his job as an engineer. But he was so ashamed he couldn't tell his family. So you know what he did? He got up early each workday, put on his coat and tie, ate his uh, breakfast, grabbed his briefcase, kissed his wife goodbye, uh, drove to his former office building and sat in his car. Now, this is a Japanese workday, 10 hours, 11 hours every day. He didn't even eat. He didn't text. He didn't call. He didn't talk to anybody. He just sat in his car in shame. He was so afraid of being found out, so afraid of the truth being seen about what was happening that he said he couldn't take it anymore. And so on the eighth day, he did the same routine, got up, and then he disappeared no word, no note, no nothing to his wife and his, his son, his young son. To this day, they don't know what happened to him. Ten years have passed, and he says, as he's telling this, this mogger who's doing this article, after all this time, I could certainly take back my old identity, but I don't want my family to see me like this. I don't want them to see me in the state. Look at me. I look like nothing. I am nothing. If I die tomorrow, I don't want anyone to be able to recognize me, end quote. Meet an unnamed young mother of a disabled eight-year-old boy. On the day of her son's school musical, which her son was performing, she disappeared. Earlier that morning, she promised her son she'd sit on the front row. And the chair was empty. And it's still empty. She's never been seen from again. She disappeared. Yuichi, another evaporated person, says, look, you have to see, you see these people in the street, he says, they have already ceased to exist. We fled from society. We disappeared the first time. Here, we are killing ourselves slowly. Now, what Yuichi is talking about, he's referring to a place called the city of Sanya. It's not, it's not on any map. And the official authorities have erased it. It's a slum within Tokyo that disappeared, evaporated people go. 
Nobody knows that it exists. Nobody will officially acknowledge that it exists because it's all about shame. Mauger writes, whatever shame motivates a Japanese citizen to vanish, it's no less painful than the boomerang effect on their families, who in turn are so ashamed by having a missing relative that they won't report the missing relative to the police. Shame, 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 shame. Shame is a big deal. Shame evaporates your life, disintegrates your life, disfigures you and me and everyone around us. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The word of the Lord. Michelle, please be seated. So, oh Lord, we ask that um, we ask that you would show up, and we ask that you would bring uh, your shame healing grace. Would you give to each of us uh, an encounter? Um, an interaction, uh, an experience of you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at this passage. I want you to look at verse 1 with your electronic device. If you need a Bible, they're underneath the, uh, the chair in front of you. Um, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Now, earlier in Matthew 5.1, it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So do you see what's happening? 5.1 to now 8. That was the Sermon on the Mount. That was the greatest sermon <laughs> ever preached in the history of the world, right? And it starts here in Matthew, and it ends here in 8, or in 5 and 8, and it all began and started in a mountain. And Matthew's intentionally drawing our attention to Jesus going up and coming down the mountain. Notice that it's not saying a mountain, it's saying the mountain. Why? Because, because Matthew loves Old Testament fossils. He writes his story, and he's dropping Old Testament fossils all over the page that you and I are meant to see, meant to stumble on, meant to pick up and say, look, an Old Testament fossil, a fossil of some great Old Testament dinosaur. So what's the Old Testament dinosaur? What's the Old Testament fossil of the mountain? The bones of Moses. We are meant to. Matthew's intentionally connecting Jesus to Moses. Jesus is Moses-like, but only better. When Moses went up on the mountain, he received words from God. When Jesus went up on the mountain, he was the word of God. When Moses led a great exodus, 
There are 10 great signs and miracles that preceded the Exodus. Here in Matthew, starting with the leper, there are 10 signs leading to the greater Exodus of the cross and the resurrection. Everything about this story, everything about this scene is, it's another Exodus. It's another Exodus. Verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, there are only two documented healings of leprosy in the Old Testament. Miriam by Moses, Naaman, the great warrior, the general by Elisha. Now, listen to how Miriam is described when she gets her leprosy. And behold, Miriam had leprosy. Same, same wording, same fossils being dropped all over that you and I are meant to see. Matthew's begging us to open our eyes to these dinosaurs. So the healing of a leper is the first miracle. It's the first sign of 10 miracles and signs that Matthew documents that leads to the exodus of the cross and resurrection, the great exodus. So why does he do that? Why a leper? What does Mark... What does Matthew want to highlight about the leper for you and me? Let's figure it out. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get into this text. Let's figure it out. Are you ready? All right, we're going to go back to an, a fossil. Moses, Aaron, uh, Miriam were all siblings. When, Mo, when Miriam sinned, she sinned in such a way that her punishment was that of leprosy. And so Aaron, he sees his sister and he's He's like, no, he hears it, and he pleads, and he begs to Moses, and he says this, don't let her become something like those born dead. So way, 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 way back, before the hit TV series, the Bible knew something about the walking dead. <laughs> the Bible knew something about zombies, the incredible cultural phenomenon called zombies, I'll never forget when Belle, I don't know, how old were you, sweetie? You were about like eight, eight or nine. And in all seriousness, she came up to me like, this is a very serious conversation. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm sitting down. She goes, Dad, what are we going to do when the zombie apocalypse hits? <laughs> so the worldwide phenomenon of the walking dead in the Bible is called leprosy. There's a scholar named William Hendrickson, and he documents the walking dead, disintegrating, evaporating, disappearing act of a leper. He says it starts with pain on some part of your body. Don't get too nervous now, all right? But it starts with some pain, and then the pain on that part of your body goes numb. And then wherever that pain and that numbness went, the skin discolors. It turns blotchy. It turns slick and scaly and thick, right? And then sores Open sores develop in that area because there's lack of blood supply. Uh, next, the skin around your eyes and your ears start bunching up because you start having swelling and then major indentions in the swelling. And so you have these grooves, these deep embedded grooves in your face. It's like you pull your face forward and you just get all wrinkled up and you start looking like a lion. Next, your fingers and toes drop off. And Hendrickson said this, or they are absorbed. I have no idea what that means, but that cannot be good. <laughs> the next, your eyebrows and eyelashes fall off. And at this point, the odor about you is absolutely overwhelming because you are carrying around you dead and dying body parts. 
Luke tells us when he does this account of the story, you know what he says about the story? He says he was full of leprosy. So right before Jesus is this man who is the walking dead. He's in the final stages of outright complete leprosy. Leprosy was the most feared medical condition in the ancient world. Leprosy disfigures you. Leprosy disintegrates you, both body and soul. If you got leprosy in the ancient world, you became an evaporated person. You had to disappear. You were banned from every walled city in the ancient world. You were cut off from the temple. You were cut off from your home. You were cut off from your community. You were cut off from your friendships. You were cut off from your career. You were cut off from all of society. To be a leper was not just to be excluded and rejected. To be a leper was you are exclusion. You are rejection. Leprosy in the Bible is shame incarnate. In her new book, Unashamed, Heather Nelson says, shame, you know what shame is? Shame is this intense feeling or experience of not being good enough, of being unacceptable, of not being worthy, of not measuring up of having deep flaws and blemishes and imperfections about you and who you are and what you do physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally broken, messed up. Therefore, you're not worthy of love and acceptance. Therefore, you're worthy or you earn and merit exclusion and rejection. That is one painful, controlling emotion. In Genesis 3, when sin came into the world, we are told that the first man and woman were what? What was the first description when sin entered the world? What was the first thing that was said about the first man and woman? They were naked and ashamed. To be naked is a visible picture of you being exposed to be unacceptable. All your unacceptability is exposed right before God and before your spouse and before the creatures and before all the, the perfect world at that time. It was to see that you are exposed, that you are completely unworthy, that there's nothing about you that is deeply flawed. You are broken in your thoughts and your desires and the way you think and the way you see and the way you act. Everything is exposed that you are worthless and unworthy, fully deserving to be excluded and rejected and not loved. Every human being comes into this world naked and ashamed. This is the human condition. This is your mom and dad. This is your children. This is your brother and sister. This is your aunts and your uncles. These are your grandparents. These are your coworkers. These are the successful. These are the unsuccessful. These are the good-looking. These are not the good-looking. This is every single human being that comes into this world is naked, riddled with unacceptability, and shamed, ashamed of it. 
Brene Brown, in her research on shame, says, you know what perfectionism is, she says? It's become the primary shield to try to cover up shame, to keep shame at bay. She says it this way. She defines perfectionism as the belief that if we do things perfectly and look perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of shame. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield that we lug around, thinking it will protect us. So what... What is your 20-ton shield? What 20-ton shield do you personally lug around to try to protect you from shame? Because every single one of us in this room is dragging a 20-ton shield. Is it your achievements? It's your career, your performance in your daily life, being a good mother, an addiction, The attention of boys. You've got to have your parents' approval. That professor needs to really think you're something special. Where has your 20-ton shield failed you? Heather Nielsen describes this dynamic this way. I thought it was very insightful. She says, we feel, when we feel our work isn't up to par, what do we do? that's our shield, if our work isn't up to par, you, you spend more time at your work, you start perfecting your work, you start eliminating your flaws, you try to deal with the worst critic and solve all their criticisms. You know, the voices you have in your head, the people that you argue with, the people you debate, those folks, right? Uh, as you do this, you spend more time at work, you spend less time at home, and so now your family relationships disintegrate. As you continue to try to Find the elusive career law that says you're a success and says you have no more shame and that you are somebody. It just gets higher and higher and you give yourself more and more to it, but you never get to it because it's an unending law that never ends. And then she says this, quote, now we add the shame of failing at family to the shame of work performance. Where has your 20-ton shield failed to protect you from shame? So what do we do? Good night. What do we do? I mean, even, even as I hear this, I'm like, what do we do with our nakedness and our shame? That's the whole point of this passage. That's why it's the first, the very first miracle of the greater exodus at the cross and the resurrection. Matthew wants you to know, here's what you do. You go boldly to Jesus with it. There's no other place to go. There is nowhere else you can go. When Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed, they tried the shields. They used little fig leaves. And it just continued to increase their shame. They never covered their nakedness. It couldn't deal with their unacceptability. It couldn't deal with that deep, ingrained feeling in the core of their being that they're not good enough. They're unrighteous, if we were to use religious language. They're ungodly. They're broken. They're sinful. They're messed up. Verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What do we do with our nakedness and shame? Go boldly to Jesus with it. Every commentator comments on how bold this guy is. Do you know what he's supposed to do? 
He is supposed to be yelling wherever he is. If he is out in public and there are clean people around, leper, leper, that's what he's supposed to be doing. Anyone that gets in within 100 feet of him is ceremonially now unclean, has to go to the temple, do purification rites to become clean, to become acceptable. He doesn't do any of that. And he is, he is boldly right before Jesus. And you've got to ask yourself, how did that happen? I think this is how it happened. He parted people like the Red Sea. You know, the odor, the walking dead, limp. The people just went, shh, you can go talk to Jesus. So go boldly to Jesus with your nakedness and your shame, right? Just like the leper. But there's just a problem with that. Shame is anything but bold. Shame is an evaporating person. Shame is a disappearing person. Shame is total, complete unworthiness. There is no bone of boldness in shame. So where did he get the boldness? How did this shame incarnate, symbolizing in all the ancient world for you and me, this is shame how did he boldly do that? Verse 2, And behold, a leper came to him, knelt down before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This gives me the goosebumps. You can make me clean. The leper knows Jesus is able to do it. Now remember, we already saw that Lord is a big deal. We saw that last week there's a Lord of the mulberry tree that can uproot it, send it into the sea. We know that the disciples, when they said Lord, were talking to him, that it was a hidden power that they weren't quite aware of. When he says Lord, he gets it. When he says Lord, it's loading all the Old Testament verbiage of what Lord meant. It has a long history in the Bible. And what Lord means in the Bible, it means God's mighty, marvelous acts, His incredible achievements and performances, His works, His glories, His medals of honor, His victories, what He has done and how He's supreme and king over everything like leprosy, like mulberry trees, like nakedness and shame. He's the Lord of it all. If you're willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. Of course he can. He's the word of God on the mountain. He's the greater Moses leading a greater exodus. But many of us have forgotten that Jesus is able to heal us and he's able to work in our life. And so we don't cry out to him. We cry out. I think one of the saddest, most devastating, and I've been there because I've done it, passages in Isaiah when it says, they cried out on their beds in pain, not to the Lord. They just cried out in their pain. So we forget that Jesus is able when we cry out, but we don't cry out to him. We just cry out. If we forget that he's able, we don't dare. We don't dare to draw near to him in his word. We don't dare to listen in his word. 
We don't dare to watch him and wait for him to move and act and work in his word. We don't dare to go to his word and watch where does my help come from, from the mountains of the word. We don't dare to go to his word to grow in the mystery of the only thing that can heal shame, grace. Grace done for you once and for all. And then functionally, experientially, daily, we need our shame healed. And only the mystery of grace does that. So we don't dare to join others who are learning to build their messy life around grace, learning to build their messy life around God. We don't do that. We don't do that in worship. We don't do that in gospel conversation. We don't do that in honest community. We don't do that in, in real friendship, loyal friendship, and in ministry. Instead, we just cry out in pain. Instead, we stay isolated. Instead, we waste away. We evaporate. We disappear and our self-imposed prison. All of that happens because we forget he's able to heal you. So knowing Jesus is able got the leper there. Let it get you there. Go boldly to Jesus with your shame. Look at verse 2 again. And behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will. Okay, now this is where it gets harder. This is... This is where it's hard. This is where it's difficult for us. This is what gets most of us. This is what stops most of us in our tracks. Most of us, if you're a church person, if you're a Bible-believing person, you at least intellectually know, all right, he's able. He's able. Now, experientially, functionally, that's a whole other story. But confessionally, theologically, he's able. But here's the one that gets us confessionally, intellectually, and here's what gets us functionally, experientially. Is he willing? Jesus, will you notice me? Jesus, will you heal me cosmically, legally, objectively, once and for all, and functionally, experientially, in a daily way? Will you work in my life? That part we just don't know. We wonder. And that's why I was going with doubt in the beginning. It's a piece, but it's not the main idea. Verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand. This is Jesus' answer. This is his answer to you right now. You ask him right now, Jesus, are you willing to help me? Are you willing to work in my life? Are you willing to heal me? Here's his answer. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. These contain some of the most stunning words in all the Bible. They're certainly the most stunning words in these four verses in this whole account. And the words are, I will. I mean, it sounds a little English, it's a little awkward. Greek, it's awkward. I mean, here's what he's saying Jesus, will you heal me? I will. It's just weird, isn't it? It's kind of, mm, what's that mean? 
Well, again, what does Matthew like to do? Plant fossils, make connections. You see, the stunning words are not that Jesus is willing to heal you and me and the leper. What's most stunning about these words is these are the exact words he uses on the eve of the greatest exodus the world has ever seen. On the eve of the cross, he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. Your will be done. And Matthew's begging for you to see that. Was the Father willing to save Jesus? Was the Father willing to heal Jesus? Was the Father willing to spare Jesus? No. Why was the Father unwilling to spare Jesus from the cross? Because he was willing to spare you. God is so willing to heal you and me, he's unwilling to heal his own son. Go boldly to Jesus with your shame. Go boldly. He's able, he's willing. You know, when we go boldly to Jesus with our shame, what does he do? Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He heals our shame. Do you see that? When Jesus touched the leper, a transfer occurred. It's so fascinating. I, I, I'm not even going to go there. It's fascinating. Many commentators were debating whether Jesus defiles himself by touching the leper. Because he's breaking, right? He's touching the unclean person. And all of them are rallying to make sure that they protect Jesus's cleanliness, his godness, his whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute. Of course he got dirty. When Jesus touched the leper, a transfer of leprosy went from the leper to Jesus. A transfer of all his shame and his nakedness and his unacceptability and his not being good enough and his not being worthy and earning and deserving exclusion and rejection went from here to him. On the cross, Jesus touches your nakedness, your real unacceptability, your real unworthiness, your real unrighteousness, your real ungodliness. And he touches your eternal shame that you know it and you feel it and that you're unworthy to be loved and you're unworthy to be accepted and you're actually deserving and meriting the opposite. And he touches it and transfers it to him. You are clean. No more nakedness. No more shame. Go boldly to Jesus.